This is Miss McFedry's reading Blood on a River by Alyssa Carbone. We're on chapter 16. The primary evidence at the top of page 123. I'm going to start with that. It says, Great blame and imputation imputation was laid upon me by them for the loss of our two men which the Indians slew, insomuch that they proposed to dispose me. That was written by Captain John Smith in A True Relation. So I'm hoping that you will have your book with you and follow along with me as I read. Um, And we're on page 123. Chapter 16. It is either Richard or God in his mercy who trips me. I sprawl on the ground, my face in the dirt. Grab him, Master Archer orders. Run, Richard cries. But before I can scramble to my feet, Reverend Hunt lifts me by one arm and holds me fast. He is a boy, he says slowly and firmly to Master Archer. Leave him be. I will deal with him. Master Archer wipes his bloody hand with his handkerchief. He gives me one last disgusted look, then turns to go. Reverend Hunt drags me with him to the chapel. Richard follows. I'm sorry, Reverend Hunt, I say as I struggle to keep up with his long strides. He is gripping my arm so tightly it hurts. He is focusing his anger, and most of that focus is going into my arm. He plops me down on a long log bench in the chapel. Do not leave until you have prayed long and hard. Pray to curb your temper. Pray for humility. You will need that desperately if you become the servant of one of the gentlemen. I hop to my feet. I will not serve one of those men. They're criminals. Then I realize what he is saying. He is assuming that at sunup, Captain Smith will be hanged and I will become another man's servant. Are you just going to let them kill him? I cry. Reverend Hunt rubs his temples. I have no authority here, he says quietly. I shake my head and sink back onto the log. Richard sits next to me. I had always assumed that Reverend Hunt held the highest authority, the authority of God. Then can you pray for another miracle, Reverend? Richard asks. Reverend Hunt looks up at him, his eyes bright for a moment. He nods. Yes, he says, I will. The three of us are quiet, lost in our own prayers. I pray to learn to curb my anger. But I do not ask for the humility to serve a new master. When we leave the chapel, we find the soldiers and laborers gathered at the cook fire. They are talking in hushed tones, their eyes shifting. We draw closer and hear their plan. There are a dozen gentlemen and over 20 of us. Yes, they have plenty of weapons, but we will have the element of surprise. Henry wants to simply slit the gentlemen's throats while they sleep, but some of the others want an all-out battle, a war. Reverend Hunt scowls. No, no killing, he says. A war amongst ourselves will be the end of us and an end to the colony. We will not even have enough men left to fend off an Indian attack. But the men ignore him. They want blood. And if it will save Captain Smith, so do I. I grow weary of listening to the men argue about their plans. I nudge Richard and we leave to walk down to the river. The afternoon sun is low. A breeze has lifted and the river has ripples over its surface. Do you think their plans will work? Richard asks me. I shake my head. A lot of men will die. Maybe you and I will die. And yet, if we do nothing, we both know 
what will happen tomorrow morning. We will watch Captain Smith climb up the ladder to the gallows, watch them slip the noose around his neck. When they shove him off the ladder, the weight of his body will jerk his neck against the noose. Our only hope will be for his neck to break quickly so that death will come mercifully. I have seen hangings where a man gurgles and thrashes and his face turns red and death comes so slowly that I have wished for a sword to put him out of his agony. A thin layer of ice has crusted over the water along the shoreline. I press on it with the toe of my shoe until it breaks like glass, making a star and th of thin lines. The wind is stiff now and chills me right through my clothes. When I first heard about the Roanoke colony disappearing, I wondered how it could have happened so quickly. Yet here we are, down to fewer than 40 men from 105, and about to kill one another off. I sit down heavily on the river bank. Something on the horizon downriver catches my attention. I blink, then rub my eyes. It's a ship. The lower winter sun has turned her sails to gold, and she's gliding toward us on the wind. My mouth goes dry. Is this the Spanish ship we have been dreading? Come to attack and kill us all? They will have an easy task. Can you see her flag yet? I ask slowly. Not yet says Richard. His eyes are on the approaching ship as well. A vulture, a vulture circles overhead. Then I see it, the sun catching it just right to show us the blue, white, and red. It's an English ship, I shout. Could it be Captain Newport after all this time? Richard cries. Reverend Hunt's words echo in my head. I have no authority here. But Captain Newport does have authority here, and I'm sure he will not let them hang Captain Smith. I strain my neck, trying to see. Who is on board? Is there a one-armed man? The ship glides closer. Shouldn't we go tell them a ship is here? Richard asks. Not until I see who's the captain is, I say. I want to know if Captain Smith is saved. Then I see him, standing at the bow, looking toward the shore. The one-armed captain of the ship. Richard and I take off running up the hill to the fort. You did it, Reverend Hunt, I shouted at the top of my lungs. You got your miracle. So that was the end of chapter 16. I know parts of it were kind of gruesome. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, chapter 17 also. Chapter 17, the primary evidence at the top is by Captain Christopher Newport from a letter to the Lord of Salisbury. The country is excellent and very rich in gold and copper. Of the gold we have brought a say, an ore sample, which proved worthless, and hope to be with your lordship shortly to show his majesty and the rest of the lords. Chapter 17 Captain Newport brings so many changes, it nearly makes our heads spin. Captain Smith is freed, and Master Archer is taken off the council. Our cabins are suddenly crowded with sixty new colonists, and the fort becomes noisy with several new dogs, a dozen hogs, and even en enough chickens to coat the ground of the whole fort with their droppings. He also brings a new boy, Thomas Savage. The men tease him because of his name. He is a savage, they say. Send him to live with the savages. Our storehouse is filled to overflowing with good things the ship has brought wheat pork ale wine butter and beef we eat very well and since this puts everyone in a good mood there's no more talk about stealing away to england 
There is a fragile peace between the gentlemen who are willing to kill us by starvation and us commoners who are ready to murder them in their beds. It is a good thing we have the sixty new men and boys to help buffer our smoldering anger toward one another. A few days after Captain Newport arrives, we hear shouts of Wingapo and look to see Indians paddling to shore in three canoes. Wingapo, Captain Smith, they call. When the canoes land and the Indian men begin to pull them up on shore, Rich and I go closer. The canoes are filled with bread, fish, and meat, turkey, squirrel, deer, and raccoon. We don't even need to trade for food, I say to Richard. We've got so much in the storehouse now that the ship is here. But Richard's eyes are wide, fixed on something. I follow his gaze. In one of the canoes sits a little girl. She has straight black hair, cut very short on the front and sides, and fastened in a long braid down her back. She wears several necklaces of pearls and copper and a mantle of deerskin over one shoulder. As we watch, she jumps out of the canoe and trots up to Captain Smith. She is fairly skipping with excitement at seeing him. I hear some of what she says as she speaks to him in Algonquin. I bring gifts from my father now that you are my countryman. The food is not for trade. It is being delivered as a gift. It suddenly occurs to me who this must be. I grab Richard's arm. It's her, I whisper. I know, Richard whispers back. We watch her as she talks to Captain Smith. She's only a child. Captain Smith says she's about ten years old. But in my mind, she has become like a goddess. She is Chief Powhatan's daughter, the girl who saved Captain Smith's life, the Indian princess who has more courage than a hundred soldiers. Suddenly, to my surprise, I hear Captain Smith say in his clumsy Algonquin, Come meet boys, they show you my home. My stomach does a little flip as Captain Smith leads her over to Richard and me. He tells her our names. I watch her happy dark eyes and keeps telling myself she's only a child. No one to be so awestruck about. And this is Amonut, Captain Smith says to me and Richard. But she is called Playful One, Pocahontas. Pocahontas grins. Come and show me Captain Smith's home, she says. I translate for Richard and he nods enthusiastically. I point to our palisades. Home there, I say in Algonquin, it is my first time trying out my newly learned words on a native speaker, and when she understands, it feels like magic. Pocahontas runs up the hill, nimble as a deer on her bare feet. Richard and I follow. I always thought that the princesses were supposed to be quiet and proper and sit around like ro looking royal. Not this princess. Pocahontas peeks inside the fort gates. The men on guard look at her and raise their eyebrows. She's the daughter of Chief Powhatan, I tell them. Powhatan's whips, Pocahontas whips her head around when she hears her father's name. Then she runs to one of our cabins to look in the door. This is Captain Smith's house, she asks. No, I shake my head. Pia I say, and motion for her to follow me. I lead her to the, Captain Sm to the cabin Captain Smith shares with Reverend Hunt the carpenter John Layden, and several other men. She is fascinated with the cabin and the Captain Smith's belongings. Like a typical child, she wants to touch everything, and because she is a princess, Richard and I don't dare stop her. 
She sits on one of the beds and jostles it, listening to the straw crackle. She grins at herself in the shaving mirror. She looks at the muskets leaning against the wall and gives them a wide berth. I realize Captain Smith must have demonstrated his firepower to her tribe. When she sees Reverend Hunt's Bible, she opens it and gently touches the pages. I wonder if it is the first book she has ever seen. When she goes to pick up a straight razor, Richard gasps. I reach to pull it away. Sharp, I say loudly in Algonquin. Bad. She gives me a mischievous look, takes the blade, and runs it quickly across her arm. Richard cries, No! I yelp and lunge for her. I grab the blade out of her hand. Richard grasps her arm. Quick, get Doc Wotan, he yells. But Pocahontas just giggles. When we inspect her arm, there's no cut at all. She has played a trick on us. Can you run fast? She asks, as if she has not just scared the living daylights out of us. Yes, I say. Running is something I've always been good at. She's asking me how fast I can run, I tell Richard. She leads us outside the cabin. She takes me by the shoulders and makes my makes me stand facing down the main lane that goes through the center of the, our fort. Then she stands Richard beside me facing the same way. We will race, she announces. It is a warm winter day, as warm as a spring day in England, and around the fort men are outside working on everything from repairing wattle and daub walls to shucking corn. They watch in amusement as we prepare for a race. To the wall, she says. I explain to Richard that we are about to race to the Palisade Wall. He nods in approval. Pocahontas readies herself next to Richard. She counts with her fingers. Nikut, ning, nuts! We run full speed down the lane, with the dogs chase, chasing and chickens squawking as they fly out of our way. I win by just a bit. Pocahontas's face glows with sweat. You do run fast, she says, but I am faster. I triple on my mantle. I tripped on my mantle. And with that, she pulls off her mantle. She has nothing on underneath, but she seems not to not even notice that she is naked. We will race again, she says. I will win this time. We line up again. I'm not so ready to let a ten-year-old girl beat me. Pocahontas counts. Nikut, ning, Nuss! I pump my legs as fast as they will go. But, but this time, freed of her mantle, Pocahontas wins easily. You just got beat by a girl, Richard teases. I grumble, but Pocahontas is already on to her next idea. Can you do this? She asks, and she wheels herself hand to hand and foot to foot like a cartwheel. I try to imitate her, but I end up falling on my bum. Pocahontas laughs and shows up again. Where am I? I lost my place. Uh oh. <laughs> Sorry, you guys. Okay. Sorry about that. Pocahontas laughs and shows us again. Richard copies her and actually does quite well. When I try again, I fall on my hip and elbow, but then I start to get the hang of it. Thomas Savage sees what we are doing and comes to join us. Soon we are all able to do the cartwheels. The men look up from their work to watch us. Three English boys in dirty shirts and worn-out slops and one naked Indian princess, tumbling like cartwheels all over the fort. 
Captain Newport tells us that the soil and rocks we sent back to England were just that, dirt and rocks. There was no gold in them at all. But the Virginia Company still wants gold, and Captain Newport is convinced we can find it for them. And so, early on a frosty morning, just a week or so after the ship has arrived, a group of men gathers buckets, picks, and shovels and sets off in search of gold to send back to England. They leave their cabins with their nighttime fires still burning. Someone from one of the cabins must have left a shirt draped over a chair near the embers, or a Bible on a table too close to the flames. Someone. Somewhere. We never did find out where the fire started. Fire! Someone shouts, and I look to see orange flames leap from one thatched roof to another. I snatch up a bucket and race to the river, but by the time I get back, more cabins have caught fire. Flames lick their way down the palisade, spreading like spilled wine. Men stumble through the smoke, trying to find the front gate of the fort. A soldier comes running at me, his clothes aflame. He grabs my bucket and empties the water over his head. His shirt sizzles and gasps, slapping at the burned fabric. I return to the river, fill my bucket again. Captain Smith is there, shouting, ordering the men into a line. Pass the buckets hand to hand, he yells. We form a line that stretches from the river to the fort, and we pass the buckets quickly. One another, one to another. Flames leap and thick black smoke engulfs the entire fort. One side of the palisade buckles and falls. Save the palisade! Someone cries. I see the men at the the fort throwing bucket after bucket onto the burning posts. The wind blows smoke towards us and it makes me cough. Cinders and bits of ash swirl in the air. I think of nothing except passing the buckets of water until the fingers are blistered and my arms ache. So much work, so many weeks we spent cutting trees, splitting clappers, tying thatch, making wattle and daub, it all turning to ashes before our eyes. It is afternoon before we finally quell the flames. We managed to save a good part of the palisade, but the houses are virtually gone, along with everything in them. Even Reverend Hunt's Bible is lost in the blaze. And worst of all, the storehouse and all the food in it has been destroyed. Ooh, that isn't good, right? Okay, so we've ended chapter 17, and, you know, it just sets it up for just the pain that's going to follow these people in the fort because that last line and worst of all the storehouse and all the food in it has been destroyed there's no more food none and they are heading into winter so we'll go on with chapter 18 when we um return to listening so thank you very much